Hey everyone, it's Glow. Welcome back to Glow Says. Today I want to start the show with talking about K-Pure Naturals. I first noticed K-Pure Natural products last summer at a great little shop called Two Trees Tofino. There was a beautifully curated collection of everything in that store. I was immediately drawn to these brown glass products that looked both old-fashioned pharmacy-like and modern to me at the same time. Since it was the first time we could all travel since COVID had started, my skin had been indoors and completely ignored for months and months. So the jar of the drenched, whipped face and body butter immediately called out to me. It was rich, creamy, perfectly scented, and super moisturizing, locally made with all natural ingredients. And since I had some interest in K-Pure Naturals as a business, I reached out to the founder, Karen, who immediately responded, and we've been in touch ever since. I love that this woman-owned business, K-Pure Naturals, is sponsoring today's show about local icon, Leslie Stowe. Hi, everyone. It's Glow Says Let's Talk Local, where this season highlights local icons and innovators in the greater Vancouver area. Have you ever heard of this product called Rain Coast Crisps? They are famous and famously delicious artisan crackers studded with things like figs and olives or rosemary raisins and pecans, my personal favorite. They even made it to the Oprah's O-List and Martha Stewart's Living Magazine. Well, today's guest Leslie Stowe created them. Then she sold them to Dare Foods. But for the 20 years before Rainforest Crisps was born, she was a real pioneer in the local culinary scene. Let's find out how she made it, her crackers and her success. Okay, welcome back everyone to Glow Says. I'm so happy to introduce a woman today from Vancouver who is a founder, a culinary pioneer, a food expert, a businesswoman, CEO, educator, trustee, board member, professional, loads of things, but you may know her the best for currently as the creator of Rain Coast Crisps. Her name is Leslie Stowe, and I'm very happy to have her on the show. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Gloria. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Tell me about yourself. I'd like to know who is Leslie Stowe? Well, I guess it's interesting that I ended up in the food industry because I had not expected that. I went to university, got a Bachelor of Arts in Art History at UBC, with the idea that I might continue in the kind of fine arts world. I was very interested in design and interior kind of architecture. But I, as many young people do that are at university, I took a summer and did the whole backpacking routine around Europe and had the opportunity to spend a day in Paris Mm -hmm. at a cooking school called La Varenne. And that was it. It was an epiphany for me. I thought I have to go back there. And so I finished my final year at UBC. I applied. They had uh, what they called stagiaires or teaching assistants at Leverman. And so they hired at any one time. They had 12 of them. Six would work in the kitchen with the chefs and six were editorial stagiaires. The woman, Ann Willen, who started the school, she had quite a good thing going because She wrote a lot of cookbooks, but she had like six people at any one time doing research for her for her cookbooks. And I was interested in the hands-on practical side. So I got hired. And part of it was that we had to translate for the chefs because the students that went there were from Australia and the UK and Canada and the United States. They weren't from France. The chefs were all French. 
So not having taken French since I'd been in high school, right? sort of went over a month early to the University of Lausanne, lived with a French family, crammed, yeah. and <laughs> ended up doing dishes at the school when I first got there. But being on that side, I then was in the kitchen every day, working with the chefs, going to the markets with them. Unlike just applying and being a student there, I was immersed in the whole French culture. And it obviously helped my French as well. My kitchen French was very good. <laughs> anyway, I spent a year there and then okay. in a two-star restaurant in Paris for a few months before I came back to Vancouver. And I guess that's my only regret in my sort of like career, the food career, was that I didn't spend just a bit longer in the restaurant scene in Paris. But being the eldest of my family, always a responsible one, I had accepted a job back in Vancouver. And so I had just really gotten the whole like hang of it and the French side because the restaurant I worked at was extremely hard work. I mean, mm. you long hours. I was the only woman in the kitchen, mm. the only English speaking. And, you know, they talk about kind of the whole how women are treated in different industries. Everyone worked hard, but, you know, I don't know, the women seem to be pushed a little bit further. Mm. But I learned so much. It was amazing. Mm. I came back to Vancouver, helped this woman who had a kitchen shop to uh, start a cooking school out mm. near UBC and spent a year and a half doing that because I'd been in the whole cooking school kind of environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And while I was at university, I did work for a caterer in Vancouver, but okay. had never thought I'd, I'd carry on a career in that. And it's definitely not in the catering business. No, no, no. Right. <laughs> but the wow. kitchen, from the teaching the classes, I got asked by another operation if I would come and help them run their cooking school mm. slash takeout slash catering business. Mm. And I jumped at that opportunity and did that for a year and a half. And through okay. that, I was back in the catering business. Right. Amongst wow. many other things. The interesting thing, the food business, especially that side is you're often like juggling a lot of things in the air. Like to mm -hmm. really make it go of it, you usually have to be doing more than one thing. Mm -hmm. And the catering business was always like very cyclical. It's like, you know, certain times of the year, obviously holiday seasons, you're going crazy. Mm -hmm. and there's like dead times. And so after that, the salt box, it was called in Arbutus Village, the owners decided they wanted to sell and I really didn't want to be in that location. Mm. So I decided that I would go and, you know, start my own thing. And I had this catering clientele then that I thought, okay, I don't want to let go of that. But I want something more consistent that is going to allow me to you know, hire at least one other person and keep them employed all the time and not just have to be rushing out to get people for right. each event you're doing. Something that was lacking in the city of Vancouver was nice quality desserts at restaurants, restaurants that didn't have pastry chefs that wanted to have something more than carrot cake and cheesecake. I see. Um, okay. I went to Toronto and I looked at different operations in Toronto Right and came back and said, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to, and I hired a couple of people to work with me along okay. with catering so that we'd also have something that we were recognized that, you know, oh, they do like amazing desserts and, right. and everything. Leslie, when you were describing your story about going to 
France and, you know, backpacking or having to go back there, I thought she's starting to talk about something that sounds like a movie. <laughs> like, you know, she's going backpacking in beautiful France and Paris and she finds something that she loves. She has to go back. But then you said something very real life, which I can relate to, which is you were the eldest one. You felt like you had a responsibility to return home. And so you got a job and you did what, you know, maybe you thought you should do or had to do. That's so respectable. I love that. <laughs> Interesting at the school. I was quite the timing of when I went there because they had new stagiaires or teaching assistants coming in at di- in different times of the year. They didn't want because we were basically running the school. Mm-hmm. They didn't want all new people at once. So I started at the beginning of the year in September, which was fortunate because I got to follow the calendar in a logical way. And at the end, the director of the school liked me quite a bit and got me this job at this restaurant and not everyone got these jobs. But I knew that I had a timeline there. And a lot of the people that were working with me thought I was so lucky to have a job to go home to. Mm. And at the time, I thought, okay, this is good that I've got a job to go to because they didn't. When you came back then to Vancouver, was it a bit jarring because you'd been in something so different and, you know, must have had its own flow, right? It's so international. You're meeting so many people, you're learning so many things. And then suddenly you're back home. When you say jarring, definitely was that. It was sort of like, you know, when you're living in a big international city like Paris and it's got kind of, I don't know, this different kind of flair and vibe, prettiness Mm -hmm. and everything that you come back to Vancouver and it just seems too homogenized or something like it just the, the flow of it. I don't like to use this word provincial, but right. it sort of felt that way a bit, right? right. Just, well, it's very know. familiar at the minimum. I know what you mean, but at, at least it's very familiar. You kind of know that whole thing. Whereas Paris, especially in your first year, probably in the first 10 years, it would feel like something different is happening every day, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the fact that it's a different language, even yes, exposed to it adds to the difference in the culture, right? Yep. Yeah. When you did come back to that job and into a place that was very familiar, at least, did you feel like you had to grow? You had to stretch a bit more? Like, it, did it inspire you to do more? Because you're like, hold on, I was just in this experience in Paris. We need this in Vancouver, or yeah. I want to recreate this. Did you have that kind of you know, motor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. no, definitely. There were a couple of even the whole cooking school thing before the catering. There wasn't that much of that in Vancouver. There was a few places where they were doing cooking classes, but not to the extension of of what I, you know, had gleaned and to share this with people. And I was also trying to figure out what direction I wanted to go in. I mean, I knew that I had had some catering experience as a summer job. I knew about that, but I was resistant to going into the restaurant business per se. You know, I probably could have gone that route, but I just thought, no, I want to do something different. One thing kind of led to the next to the next. You know, I also think I come from a family where it's like, you know, get on with that, right? I totally understand that. I think this, you know, people now have the, ability to give themselves some space, or maybe it's the permission, I'm not sure, but they definitely 
feel like giving themselves space to think is valid. <laughs> Where, whereas I think maybe you and I are more from the same background where, yeah, you just got on with it. You didn't think too much. You just kind of moved to the next step. Hopefully it was forward and not backwards. Cause that's the only way you were looking <laughs> was forward. I was fortunate that I had opportunities that kind of presented themselves I'd right on the way too at the kind of right time. Right. Right. So then after I started up this, catering and dessert business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we got press out of that too, which was great, especially with bishops having the death by chocolate. And then we created life after death. And, <laughs> and that was a, so death by chocolate was basically a chocolate terrine. Yes. With raspberry Kool-Aid splashed on the plate so that, you know, you see this chocolate with this, you know, raspberry Kool-Aid and right. it was like very like, the head of the time when we did it, it was just like, wow, that's like something else. Right. <laughs> and when we did the life after death, it was a frozen white chocolate, marsala kind of semi-fredo ice cream. Yes. Red wine, cinnamon reduction sauce. So it was like the, the kind of a contrast to the dark. The restaurant couldn't figure out how to make that one. So <laughs> wow. you after a while, but <laughs> yeah. I can picture that. I can remember that death by chocolate. I can picture the font and the actual like ad or something. Like I can picture, I'm sure I had it. The issue with restaurants is Mm. that they're not too speedy on paying their bills. We, you know, have these orders and we'd be making everything from scratch and delivering them to them. And the check was always in the mail, right? Mm. And a few restaurants actually went out of business, owing us all this money. And I said, mm. so taking a can of tomatoes and like just delivering it. It's like we're making these things from scratch. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a grind, but we also had the catering. So we moved along and we did that for almost five years. Okay. And Towards the end, you know, maybe in the fourth year, I was really getting itchy about the idea of having a store. And I had seen, you know, in traveling, I'd been to New York and San Francisco and Toronto where they had these specialty food stores. This was like around 1990. Vancouver didn't have anything like that. Granville Island had just opened up. That was a new brand new like thing and like amazing. And Vancouver had like European delis. And that was like about it. Then any bakeries that were at traditional North American kind of bakeries. There was a store in Toronto that was called David Wood. And then okay. the one in New York that's more well-known, Dina DeLuca, which very unfortunate has recently gone out of business. They expanded, I guess, too much, too fast. Even though they've been in business in New York forever. For a long time. Here. Right. Yes. But many of us in the specialty food business look towards what they did and mm-hmm. got a lot of, you know, ideas from them. And so yeah. I thought, okay, Vancouver's ready for this. Vancouver needs this. And so I explored the idea of being on Granville Island, but there were too many restrictions there. Okay. Where if you're in the market, you couldn't do everything. You could only, if you're like a pasta shop, you couldn't sell like, you know, desserts or this sort of thing. So I, I, I really wanted to be freestanding. Yeah. And, but I wanted to be close to Granville Island because I felt yeah. that was kind of a draw for people. So we found this location at 3rd and Burrard, a great mm-hmm. location mm-hmm. and visible from Burrard. And, but a little bit different because along that strip was like all car showrooms. Right. <laughs> so, but as you came up Burrard, you could see it. And yeah. so the idea is that we would do catering there and we would continue to do the desserts for restaurants. However, they had 
to pick them up themselves and they had to pay when they picked them up. <laughs> okay. Wow. That's a game changer. <laughs> yeah. Yes. In the mail business. So yeah. some of them continued on, some didn't, but I said, okay, you just, you know, you have to keep reinventing yourself. It's right. Business. So yeah. the idea was that we would have packaged goods from around the world and search out really some great olive oils and good mustards and preserves and coffee dessert counter and an entree counter where we prepared foods that people could then pick up and just warm up at home. Okay. Interesting. Cause I think even today people say to me like, and this is like going back years that there's no place that's really, as far as the prepared food side Mm -hmm. that really is producing like the sort of thing that we did. There are places for takeout and like stores and stuff, but not like quite what we were doing. And then we had some tables where you would come in and have coffee and a scone or a muffin, or you could have lunch. It wasn't like kind of restaurant per se. It wasn't that big, but you could have lunch there from what we were doing. No, it was a natural extension of what you were doing. I I do remember it. What I wanted to ask was when you had finally got the brick and mortar, was Mm -hmm. that something that you think people today still need to do with the business? You know, like I'm sure for you personally, it probably gave you more creative license is what I would guess, you know, and, and a place that people could find you and could pick up. You wouldn't have to deliver, but is it something that's necessary in a business you'd say? I don't think today, because I think, you know, even look at what's happened recently with the, you know, everything kind of going towards online and Zoom, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I, I think that things have changed and the p- pandemic has made like people like take a step in a different direction. No, I don't think it's necessary. I think at the time, definitely for us, I didn't want to be just what our last event was that that right. was where we were, right? right? I wanted a brick and mortar where people could come in. They mm-hmm. didn't have to have a party. They could come and get like an amazing piece of salmon with uh, papaya salsa and a dessert and mm-hmm. home and just have it like for their family. They didn't have to have a party per se. Right. And, and then allowed us to like expand from that because we did a lot of packaged products that had a shelf life, for example. Yep croutons and vinaigrettes and dips and soups and lasagnas and things that were in our freezer. There were so many different things that people could grab and go, so to speak. Right. And did you market it under your name or was it just things that they came to your cafe or deli or fine food emporium, they could get it? Originally, we were the executive chef. That's what we started when we were in commercial drive. And then that was a bit too generic a name. So we changed it with the help of a marketing company said to me, you know, you should use your name. So yep. the business became Leslie Still Fine Foods. Yes. So everything that we did that was, you know, a product that we produce, that our name was on that. Like we were just packaging it there, right? right. It, was, it was going out somewhere. It was just because we were doing small amounts of things. And also right. it was an extension of with the catering, you might be like making something for catering. And then they said, well, we're going to make it for the store as well. We had lots of different things going on, which, you know, is good and bad because some things as far as financially, the business, of course, at certain times of year, people are entertaining more. So they're going to come more. Obviously, during the holiday season, you're going crazy and up all hours trying to right. order. Right. And then you have the quiet seasons, right? It was even though it was a store, you still, it was cyclical as well. That was challenging. 
How many people did you employ at sort of your height? Because at the beginning, you mentioned when you were looking at the salt box, you wanted to hire one more person in addition to yourself. How many did that become eventually? Well, I'd say in our store operation, it would have been probably not talking about staff that would go to events, but probably about 25 people. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's a sizable operation already. It's very labor intensive, right? When you only have one store, it's hard to scale things to, in a lot of cases, make them financially viable. Right? Yes. Because we had, the store was very attractive. It was well set up. It mm-hmm. was presented well. And mm-hmm. I was like particular about all those things. Mm-hmm. But he walked in and it like, you know, it was a great feeling and, and very appetizing and the smells and everything mm-hmm. people would think you know, oh my gosh, they must be just making so much money because it was all like high quality things, right? But that was the food industry, the margins are pretty slim. And mm-hmm. and again, there's so much labor involved. You're making a chocolate caramel hazelnut mousse cake, you know how long, even if you make right. like six of them, how long it takes to, yes. to do that? Well, and you're probably doing a very high-end chocolate as well, which is expensive. Do you have any advice for people who are thinking of starting a catering business now? You had told me, I thought it was a fair response. (laughs) You have to sort of pick your path. And with catering, I think to be successful at it, set, you know, high standards and try not to be everything to every person. For a proper catering business, you need to have a commercial kitchen. So there are opportunities where you can rent commercial space from someone else that already has something going on where you're not taking the space on yourself, mm-hmm. you have to keep, you know, looking at your numbers. And at a certain point, I mean, I know when food business is in your blood, it's like this weird kind of addiction. Like you keep, you know, sometimes doing things that you're so passionate about, but you're not actually making any money at them. I mean, <laughs> I have to say both with my father and my husband, mm. they were like, weren't in the business at all, but were my greatest mentors in that way. And that I, it was my business always. I was the principal, but I didn't have a partner. Mm. But I sounding boards from like, you know, my father and my husband. And they, you know, would are those wedding cakes that you're like spending so much time and working so hard and, you know, have amazing reputation. Are you actually making money at that? Right. Right. Interesting. So the labor of love at some point, you know, to make it a viable thing, it's not a bad thing to be making money. You are yep. then have a healthy business that you can keep people employed. Like the whole That's concept right. of like, oh, you're making a lot of money. It's not even making a lot of money, making enough money to keep the whole thing running. Right, right. right. <laughs> I think a lot of creative people have maybe a mind problem with that, making money for creating something beautiful, you know, or that they're passionate about. But actually, that's probably a wrong concept because it's fine to make money, you know, to exchange time for money. It's fine. Everybody else does it. Why can't somebody who's making something beautiful and they're passionate about it too, it's fine to make it for money. People are, I think, disconnected with, I mean, certainly as I went along of like how much things actually cost, like Mm -hmm. if someone came into our store and saw like a cake, for example, and it was like $40, it's like, oh my gosh, $40 for that. If you laid it out for them and showed them how much it actually the ingredients, if mm-hmm. you go yourself and go and like decide you're going to buy the ingredients and then put a value on your time. That's right. 
So for me, that would be paying somebody. And then at the end of that, you have to have be able to pay for the cost of the space and everything yep. else. So yep. at the very end of that, you need to make some money out of it. That's right. What you're spinning your wheels. That's right. And a lot of businesses get themselves in those kind of positions and yep. they, it's not sustainable, right? Yeah. And well, and it sounds like that it was an, a benefit to you maybe to have mentors that weren't in business with you, because I was going to ask you, would you have considered getting a business partner to work with you? But sometimes it's better to have someone that's not so close, like not in the business to have an objective consultant, yes. if you will, or an objective, you know, business person. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, I felt very fortunate that I had great team of people that worked with me. I always said, we are this and we're that. And people would say, well, what do you mean we? Who's the we? <laughs> Rather than saying I, because most things that happen were like a team, you know, effort and a team yep. decision. And ultimately it was, you could say I got, my name was on the building, but also that could be a detriment too. I mean, anything negative like fell on me too, right? Understood. Like, yeah. Not on anybody else. And the yep. bank, the bank would come after me, not <laughs> anybody else. Right. That's right. So, That's right. But I felt that I treated my team extremely well. Was very cognizant of their input and their suggestions and vision. And so I felt great about our environment. And people yep. were, you know, happy to be there and excited to be part of something that was quite. I mean, I have to say, from the beginning, we we're quite innovative in that first sort of specialty food store in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And then we really pursued things like bringing things in that had not been available in Vancouver, like Valrona chocolate. We were the first one to have that. We brought in Manache bread from Toronto, which was mm. this Mediterranean bread because there was no bakeries that weren't kind of North American bakeries that mm. uh, this fellow Chris Brown who worked at a place called Pierre Dubrel he was teaching he worked for um Berdoch for years at one of his restaurants but his love was bread and then he mm. was uh, at this cooking school and then we asked him did he want to come and like you know do some bread and maybe on the weekends and see how it worked out we came when like in no time it was like he was like leasing space from us in the middle of the night because it was so popular wow lined up outside <laughs> the door this was well before it was called Echo Apane and which doesn't yep. exist now, but this was before Terra Breads or yep. Vetar or any of these kind of bakeries that have since like come out of that. It was the first kind of European, like rustic, like, yes. like really great Levant kind of bread. We were doing cooking classes to introduce people to different things that we were bringing in. And if you walked in the store, you could, if you wanted to taste an olive oil, we'd open a bottle for you. You couldn't go into like the Safeway and get well right. to find it. The timing, in a way, we were, I think, a little bit ahead of our time mm -hmm. in that it was a new thing for people. But the piggybacking on the on the Granville Island thing, mm -hmm. that was like the first introduction for people outside of their grocery store, like the right. grocery stores or the right. grocery stores where you could go and pick and choose. It wasn't just on your list and, oh, we've got lettuce and we've got like tomatoes and we've got this. So that's what the store has. So you just buy it. Right. Actually choose, which is really more the European way. Yes. Go to market and they were demanding. Like if it wasn't good at one stall, they'd go to another one. Right. But that concept, you know, certainly in that period of time, didn't really like 
exist, I'd say, in Vancouver or so much in North America. And, right. You know, as the really big metropolises. Like my experience was particularly in Paris. You go to the, the street market that's mm-hmm. set up every Tuesday and you're not allowed to pick out the apples or the tomatoes. They pick them for you. So if you didn't get something good, you'd go to the next guy the next time. And then it goes right back to the farmers. So the quality was is, was so much better. Mm-hmm. So from the consumer demanding more from the supplier demanding more of the farmer. Yeah, I always love the whole concept of market shopping. Great background story. That was part number one. I hope you can catch part number two of Leslie's story on Thursday. Follow me at Glow Says on Apple or Spotify, and I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.